Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 55 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. Today's guest, Dr. Timothy Avery, is, like me, a veteran and a clinical mental health professional. Timothy and I talk about a range of things, but one of the most interesting parts of our discussion to me is how our experiences of emotion are felt in our bodies. At least half of our emotional experience is in our body. Uh, we don't sit there and say, I am very angry right now. There, there's a tension in the voice, there's a tightness in the throat, there's a shallow breath, probably a tightness in the gut, maybe some blood pumping in the fists and feet. Um, so, so to even know our own emotions and what we're feeling requires the body and connection to the body. And on top of that, many traumatic experiences involve a physical experience, uh, being in a vehicle when, when a trauma happened or being assaulted physically by somebody when the trauma happened. And, and the, our body is in particular physical condition and we're in a particular posture, uh, a different certain heart rate and physiological states they get paired with this traumatic experience. And so we say, well, one, way, one thing we say in psychology is uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. So these experiences get connected, and now often chronic pain is also connected to this experience. So the pain is connected to the trauma, connected to the anxiety and depression. And to provide culturally appropriate and trauma-informed yoga helps active duty and veterans leverage their own inner resources to understand their own body. It provides an, an experimental space for them to look at this is not right for me because it's exacerbating an injury and I should stop. That gives control over one's experience. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us and to learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, as you know, we're always trying to have conversations about how to bring veteran mental health out into the wider conversation. Uh, and today's episode is another one that will definitely do that. You know, sometimes, uh, again, we have organizations that we promote that uh, support veteran mental health. We have some veterans on and we have some mental health providers who are veterans on. And my guest today happens to be all three. So uh, he is a veteran himself. He's a mental health professional and he has an organization uh, that helps veterans. So we're going for the trifecta in this one. So uh, I'd like to introduce the audience today to Timothy Avery. Timothy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we've been trying to do this for a little bit. Um, we've been uh, off and on. You and I first met when you were on Justin series podcast. Well, you were on Justin's podcast and then through Justin, uh, you and I got connected. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Justin's a great connector, networker. And then I uh, quickly learned that you were as well, 
seeing how, how you're bringing together so many people and sharing information about veteran mental health. So I was glad to make the connection uh, to you through him. Well, I think a lot of us providers are talking to each other, and this is just a way to kind of capture that and let everybody uh, eavesdrop on us a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into um, a little bit about what you're doing now, I, I guess I'd like to te- uh, have you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your military background, and then kind of uh, what happened after you left the military. Yeah, um, I'm from upstate New York and uh, was living at home, going to community college for the first year there, couldn't afford to go anywhere else, and uh, was sick of living at home and had to get out of town, and recruiter called me on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, we had a very aggressive local Navy recruiter. And uh, so I was studying engineering and uh, going enlisted. Nuclear power was the fastest advancing, highest paying enlisted job in the late 90s. Uh, so that sounded good to me. So I signed up, did that, and realized, uh, actually, I want a degree as soon as possible. <laughs> and uh, learned about the commissioning programs and signed up for a few workshops and uh, applied for ROTC in the academy, the U.S. Naval Academy, got in there and ended up uh, going that route, got uh, separated from the enlisted side and went to the academy and then uh, selected aviation uh, to stay above water instead of going submarines as my initial intent was joining the Navy. Uh, but that wasn't for me and the Navy was IRADing in 0405 and voluntary release from active duty. Uh, so they sent me home uh, with a year after graduation, a lot of people are upset about that. Academies, a lot of investment, and uh, let me go. Uh, and the reserves were full too, so they were offering blue to green transfer, uh, Army or Marine Corps. And while I respect all that work, I'm fourth generation enlisted Navy, uh, so Navy Navy is me. That's what I do. And uh, so I had to get out for a few years and st- missed it. So luckily, uh, in their infinite wisdom. Navy said, okay, we kicked too many people out, get people back in. And uh, I, I think the worst of all the branches at that, the um, the slinky effect of get rid of everybody, get everybody back in. So I got in a very active reserve unit and uh, ended up getting being a plank owner for both the active and reserve side for the Kennedy Irregular Warfare Center, a new division within the Office of Naval Intelligence. And uh, we provided support and deployed in support of uh, ground, Navy ground elements, special operations and CBs. And so I ultimately uh, deployed to Iraq in support of one of those units and then got back and scratched that itch of deploying and tried to figure out what I wanted to do next. So there's my military background. And actually through that, I was a management consultant coming in and out off of orders. So I'd, I'd put on a suit one day and, and go work for Department of Health and Human Services or the Department of the Navy. Those were my two main clients. Uh, and then I'd put on the uniform and from anywhere from two days to 14 months and be back in the Navy. So that's a, a very, uh, I guess, non-standard career is yes. a, a gentle way to put it. I was just thinking, and you and I followed similar paths, although I didn't, didn't go the in and out. Um, I too, I tried one semester of community college and I was tired of li- living in my dad's basement. And, yeah. uh, and I said, sign me up. I uh, did have an option when I was in Bosnia to uh, to become an officer, decided to, to turn that down and continue the enlisted route. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was a recruiter about that time uh, in 2004, 2005. I was actually at Fort Meade um, uh, while you were there at uh, at the academy, I think. And we were doing a lot of blue to green transfers. We were bringing in a lot of officers from the Air Force uh, and the and the Navy, um, nice. and so uh, in uh, in an alternate universe, I might have been your recruiter to bring you yeah. into the Army. Had that very uh, realistic. That worked. Yeah. Um, but then, but then going back and forth and and reserve duty, and especially not today, but but in the past, it would have been just you know one week in a month, two weeks out of the year. But that's actually where you got your deployment time. And, yeah. uh, and that was, uh, that was probably challenging struggle or juggling, I think, between civilian military, your, um, your career obligations and then your military obligation. Yeah. Uh, reserves, uh, is even though the, the slogan is uh, weekend warrior, the administrative responsibilities in the reserve are the same 
plus compared to active duty. Uh, so it was like a second full-time job. I just keeping up with uh, general training, uh, required paperwork, being ready for deployment. So it was uh, time consuming. Uh, one thing that helped is I didn't have a significant other at the time, so I didn't have to, or, or kids or anything, so I, I didn't have to uh, try to manage that that third piece. Uh, so it was uh, was challenging, especially after deployment, uh, because within a month I was wearing a suit back in the office, and whereas the active duty folks are most likely to go back to a, a unit who has some ideas to what they've been through, have some uh, general attitude and arousal towards we got a mission to do uh this is important work uh the the drastic slowdown to working back in a civilian environment is quite taxing and i, I found it very stressful and uh, internally i was frustrated with my co-workers about their lack of motivation uh and i thought it came across in my my speech and attitude but just this last year, I interviewed my former manager for the fun of it, uh, for personal research and to help understand clients' experience and so on. And uh, she said it didn't come across or compared to the rest of uh, what she was dealing with in, her, in, in the job. My attitude didn't seem particularly unproductive. And that was interesting to hear that, that I had such inner turmoil and frustration, and I thought I was being aggressive or difficult to deal with and found out that um, other people did not perceive that. You know, and that's that's very interesting, and I hear that a lot from the veterans that I work with, um, is they find themselves screaming at the top of their lungs inside their head, right? You know, and they, yeah. they think they project that out into, you know, I've even experienced that too. But you're exactly right. After my deployments, I came back and, and I was still on active duty, and I had this cocoon around me called Fort Carson, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I went right back into the, um, the daily grind and preparing for another deployment and all these other things. Uh, and and we've often heard about, you know, the the combat vet coming back and going to work for Home Depot, right, as a reservist. But you found the same thing even going back in a professional corporate environment, um, that it was still the same frustration that that person, you know, that that young, you know, E4 uh, went through. Um, and so that's a that's a commonality among the the whipsaw, really, from what I've heard of transition for reservists and National Guardsmen. Yeah, and it's interesting that several of my co-workers were uh, prior active Marines and some Navy folks, and my client was Department of the Navy, but it was financial operations, which is a um, very corporate-like environment. So even though they were familiar with the, the, the mission of the military and they were supporting the military, uh, and they were in the DOD, there was still that uh, difference, that uh, that frustration. So then, uh, after um, you got done with the deployment, so you worked in uh, corporate for a while or consulting, as you said, before you decided to make another shift towards veteran mental health. Yeah, uh, I forget how I learned about it. Maybe it was my uncle. I finally did the book. What color is your parachute? Uh, the best-selling job book of all time. And the second half is a structured self-exploration of skills, interests, values, priorities. Came up with three career fields that overlapped in my interests and interviewed somebody, uh, a psychologist, who actually happened to be, I interviewed two or three psychologists, two of whom were at the Naval Academy because I lived in Annapolis at the time. And uh, I shared my interests and how I like to work and asked them about their careers. And psychology just sounded like the best overlap of the impact I want to make on the world, the skills I like to use, um, and helping other people. Uh, I, I want to be my fullest possible self, whatever that looks like. And I feel uh, compelled to help other people achieve whatever that is for them. And uh Feel psychology was the best way I saw it to do that. So it it wasn't necessarily I want to help veterans. It was it was more the profession that drew you. Um, you know the, the idea of like you said helping people self actualize and things like that. But it wasn't specifically veteran mental health that that you saw yourself doing. 
No. Uh, and I didn't know how much of a, how the significance of mental health to veterans, how much of the field of mental health involves veterans, Psycho the VA being the biggest trainer of every mental and physical profession I think there is in the U.S. They train more than anybody else. And I selected a graduate program that was affiliated with a VA, had uh, practicum training sites at a VA, and that interested me, and I wanted to continue to be involved. And as I got into the field or, or got into school, on the one hand, people had the expectation, oh, he's a veteran, he wants to work with veterans. So I was kind of nudged in that direction gently. Uh, but also, the work is difficult enough and requires so many different skills that the more I already have built-in knowledge or skills, such as military culture, the more I can take things even further with a client. So I took advantage of, uh, I, I realized on the one hand, the important need uh, for mental health services in veterans, uh, the stigma, how much that interferes with meeting that need, or other issues, maybe logistical and so on, and that uh, my unique background being enlisted, officer, deployed, uh, put me in a position to potentially help many people. And so I just saw it as a, maybe, this isn't the best word, but sort of a, a, a force multiplier of sorts to bring all those together in, uh, in mental health. So now, yes, that is mostly where I want to focus and that where I have been is uh, better in mental health. So, in, and I agree, I think that was sort of uh, the way I approached it as well. You know, I'm a combat veteran. Um, senior enlisted, not not having as wide a range, and and even your experience, both active duty and uh, you know the reserve thing. I mean, it's it, it really. I like to explain it as we're native speakers of, right. of acronyms specifically, but but yeah. we're native to the military. We have experiential um, uh, background in the military, and then it comes along with clinical training, um, and and that's um, that's exponential. I think rather than just additive, um, having that. And this is what I've seen with veterans. Have you seen the same thing when you work with veterans? Uh, the, the acronyms and saving time coming from that background? Yes, that, but also just the fact that you, you're essentially, you have the native experience, but then your clinical training, those two things added together. It's like peanut butter is great, chocolate is great, but the two of them together are <laughs> even better, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, well said. Yeah, the, that they're additive, um, and yeah, the more than the sum of the parts. So uh, you started working um, in the VA um, as as a as a student, as a doctoral student. Um, what was it like for you as a a combat veteran and, and everything that you had working with veterans um, as a mental health professional instead of like an officer? Um. Well, one of the reasons I went officer, at least I articulated at the time, and I think it applies in that I thought I could make more of an impact on sailors' lives uh, by becoming an officer. I could have greater influence. And that's one of the reasons I went that route, other than the degree and, and, and not having to clean as many toilets anymore. Uh, and similarly, transitioning to psychology, uh, because I want to help people, I want to facilitate others meeting their goals and getting what they want in life. Uh, I thought that fit really well. That gave me that opportunity to do that. And not all my clients know I'm a veteran. Depending on what they're dealing with and what their questions are and how I might best help them, they may or may not know. But from my side, having uh, seen the military from a few different angles, uh, active reserve, enlisted officer, uh, I could conceptualize more quickly uh, get a better sense as to whether or not what they're talking about is abnormal or strange or or part of their training and culture uh, and use that to help them get closer to their goals, to articulate their goals in the context of their lives and find appropriate, culturally appropriate ways for them to achieve those goals. Uh, yeah. And so, and you've said uh, something there, and I think this is actually something you and I talked about a while ago when we, when we first uh, got together, but you're talking about culture. Um, yeah. and, and on the show here, uh, several different times I've talked about cultural competence and the need for culture. Um, but, uh, but many veterans don't see, I mean, that's all they know, right? You know, they don't right. see it as a separate culture, but by every definition that a culture is, the military is a separate culture from those who hadn't served. 
Uh, and so I guess I'd like to hear more of your views on military culture and maybe how it differs um, than, than other culture. Yeah, I agree. Every definition, every way we understand culture, military uh, has its own uh, language, its own norms for behavior, uh, its own set of relationships and common experiences. And all of us are obviously a giant Venn diagram. Uh, and some people, a large 90% of who they are is military. Other people, it's their, their family culture, their ethnicity, race, uh, the part of the country they grew up in. And military culture is just a very small part of that. And most everybody is some combination in between of that, that mixture. And uh, it's well known in the field of mental health that we can't conceptualize somebody fully without understanding their culture. And to be able to take that into account that this is the person in front of me, where they come from, uh, they're Latino, they're European heritage, they're Asian, um, they're from the South, they're from the North, they're from California. Which parts of these are, where, where do these overlaps occur and, and to what degree is it, um, is this attribute really important to them or just uh, a, a, a throwaway or they're willing to adjust or change? Uh, so it's a bit abstract the way I'm, I'm talking about it, but uh, I think we can't help somebody unless we're curious about their culture and have some basic understanding. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a veteran, obviously, and I've heard you say this before, you don't have to be a veteran to provide uh, good service. However, you should be curious and recognize that that culture influences one's perspective. I, I Obviously, I absolutely agree, but I think it's also necessary for veterans to become aware that theirs is a separate culture too, mm, yeah. um, that they don't have the awareness. I mean, this is, uh, again, I've often said it. It's like um, I went to go live in, in England or Ireland for 22 years. I still spoke, we spoke English, but it was a different type of English, right? You know, and, and so I, I became used to a different culture. And then I moved back here to Colorado and, and it's like it, and it would be a culture shock. But if I wasn't mm. aware of that cultural difference, I see that in a lot of my clients is they get frustrated because other people that walk like them and talk like them and look like them don't understand them because they come from a different culture. Yeah, the expectation that uh, I, I have many clients that this is how it is and, and these people should just know. Mm -hmm. And uh, to try to open up and re recognize, well, your experiences lead you to understand it that way and see it that way. These people haven't had those experiences. They've had a different experience. And yet, uh, not knowing the water that you're swimming in, that you're, this is uh, your fish and water and, and military culture is, especially when people join at 18 and don't have much experience outside of maybe their hometown their whole life. And, and those, those are the only cultures they recognize. Uh, and uh, that failure to recognize differences in culture can lead to a lot of banging your head against the wall. Like, what's wrong with everybody? Or what's wrong with me? Why am I so different? Uh, so recognizing that cultural differences uh, affect how we view things can uh, meet, meet the ultimate goal of being more adaptive. I think pretty much all of veterans' issues are, are some variation of adapting well or not adapting well. And I think that's something, again... Uh, we adapt while we're in the military. Um, yeah. Uh, I've, uh, again, um, as I was outside of Fort Meade, um, I've been down to the Naval Academy. I love it. Beautiful place. Mm. Uh, you had to adapt, right? I mean, it was, you were yeah. forced to adapt almost. Uh, and that was a different culture, um, you know, fleet Navy versus aviation. I mean, so in the military, we adapted to the operational environment, but somehow it seems like when veterans get out, we lose that ability to adapt, or we don't know that we have that ability to adapt and apply it to this situation. Yeah, I think that there's at least two main parts of that, and that the military spends so much effort indoctrinating people into the culture, and that is necessary to uh, to decrease ambiguity. So if we recognize that everybody's role, no matter how close they are to the front lines, is to fight the war, we need to decrease 
cognitive load. You need to decrease mental energy going towards things that aren't immediately re, re, immediately pertinent to the fight. So if we indoctrinate you into a common language, into your social hierarchy, our big brain here, the front part of our brain, the reason it's so big is for social interaction. And if I put a rank on your sleeve and some ribbons on your chest, I know where you've been, what you've done, and my relationship to you. I don't need to spend mental energy on our social relationship. I know exactly how that works. So any free mental energy I have, especially under stressful circumstances, uh, we don't have much free mental energy in those circumstances, I can use what's little left to address the ambiguities of combat, of the situation in front of me. So I have my procedure. Uh, I know my job really well in and out. The whole, I, one way I understand it is the whole goal of military training is to reduce any ambiguity. And, and so we can adapt under those circumstances because we have somebody else taking care of the food, the medical, the logistics, the pay. So, our, so we don't have to take care of those things. And we could adapt in our narrow role in the organization. And we get out, that organizational structure is not there. And we don't have the indoctrination into the more ambiguous, broader society. No, I, I, I hear you. And, and that makes total sense. I'm thinking of when I was a platoon sergeant in Afghanistan, we conducted security escort patrols. And I was in charge of the, the convoy, the patrol. And I used to direct my driver with hand and arm signals like I would, you know, um, stop or maybe tap her leg or something like. But but we got to that point where we we understood I wouldn't it was all nonverbal commands. Right. It was mm. always that you was like we we reduced that and we worked so well together that, you know, I was able to do that. And then I had somebody come in and replace her for a period of time while she was on leave. And the first time I hit him on his leg, he freaked out. I was like, what are you doing? Right. And it was <laughs> and, it, and, and it wasn't the you know, we didn't have that easy communication uh, because that wasn't established. And, and I think that's the that's the feeling that veterans get that pattern recognition. These are the set things. This is what this means. This is what this rank means. This is what this um, this patch means. I, I deal with different people. So we have that immediate pattern recognition in the military and then we got get out and we don't have that. Um, and I think that's that goes into the 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 part um, of my uh, my viewpoint of the needs that we met in the military. We have to learn to meet those needs in a new way. Yeah. After the military, it's the same needs. We still need to 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 eat and get our mail and stuff like that. But and it's not a helplessness thing. It's just a that's not anything we ever had to worry about before. And we have to figure out how to apply that to our post military life. Right. And. Typically, anything that we did have to do involved uh, six hours to a year of training. So anytime you have a new responsibility, you had clear training and instruction on how to do that. And we don't provide such training afterwards. And I think that's where the benefit of um, going through uh, mental health counseling. And, and again, I, I say it all the time. You don't see a therapist because you're crazy. Um, it's a way to learn how to. Um, to, to, to basically apply these things. Um, uh, as you and I, I think, have talked, and, and the listeners know, I work with a lot of justice-involved veterans with our local veterans court. Uh, and, and I've had veterans, after they go through the program and after they, they work with the, uh, the therapy, they're like, how come I didn't know this sooner? This is like <laughs> basic training for civilian. I mean, and it's about, you know, understand all the things that I've talked about here. Um, but they're like, why do we not, not, why does everybody not do this? And, and many of them, why did I have to get to the point where something happened and other people got hurt or I got hurt uh, to, to do this? Uh, and I think that's a, a lost um, benefit, I think, to mental health counseling that people think, well, you just go because you're crazy and that's it. Yeah, that's a big barrier to overcome. And one way that we do that, or that I've seen it happen, is Vietnam and Korea veterans say, I waited, uh, I stayed busy for 30, 40 years, I worked hard, uh, I, I was grumpy and upset, but I was put together well enough. And then they retire and the stuff hits the fan, and now they have all these symptoms affecting their life and realize they didn't deal with it sooner. And I've been hearing younger veterans who have relationships while either with their parents or with coworkers or friends in their community that say, hey, I dealt with stuff uh, 
and they had it, I, I think we could realistically say in terms of society, more difficult, at least the Vietnam guys did, guys and gals coming back uh, in terms of support from the community. Uh, but regardless, the waiting so long, missing out on so many great things in life. Uh, and, and you could wait and grin and bear it and try to push through. Uh, but why not have all the fantastic things that you and your family and loved ones and uh, want in career and maybe in spiritual growth or uh, in honoring those who aren't here? Uh, th there's so much richness to be had, and, and uh, we need to help get that word out. And so are you seeing, and maybe just anecdotally, um, are you seeing more younger veterans coming to dealing with these situations sooner? I don't think I've had enough time in the field or enough clients to say that there's a trend. But in my personal experience, and I'll point out now that I'm not a licensed psychologist. I hope to be soon, but I have my degree not license, and these are just my opinions. Uh, I think I, I have seen that through efforts. I'm not sure which part's working, but some of it is the older vets saying, hey, hey it's it's worth it. Re respected older vets who have been through some stuff, uh, have built up their wasta, so to speak, uh, and uh, leading in some ways, uh, leading the community and say, hey, this is worthwhile stuff. You shouldn't wait so long. Uh, so I have seen younger vets, uh, people who uh, I'm surprised would take the time to seek treatment. And often it's with regards to uh, a sibling or a parent uh, saying, you should go do something. So somebody who uh, a trusted loved one or a respected elder uh, saying, check this out, it's worth your time. Uh, I think those are the main things that are getting younger folks in. No, I, I can absolutely see that. I think of uh, my father being a Vietnam veteran, and before I deployed to Iraq the first time, uh, specifically to combat, uh, when I deployed in Bosnia back in the mid-90s, it, it was like combat light, basically. It wasn't yeah. really. But uh, but I remember him very clearly sitting down and um, you know, mid-tour leave before I go, and he said, um, when you get back, don't hold it in. Talk to mm. your wife about it. Do not do what I did and try, you know, and so he was in his way, he was trying to say, you know, son, don't do the things I've done. Uh, and, and yes, I see that even in older veterans now, but also the point where you said that older veterans are, are, are having these challenges now approaching 50 years uh, after that, uh, there's not a Vietnam veteran who's younger than 63 right now. Mm. Um, and uh, as, as many listeners know, and, and sure, you know, Timothy, is that uh, the, the VA study um, on veteran suicide back in uh, 20, well, it was released 2016, but the 2014 suicides, the greatest number of veteran suicides in 2014 were ages 65 and older. And so those veterans, as you said, I, I'm seeing uh, Vietnam veterans and even some Korean War veterans in my practice um, who are saying exactly what you said is, is I've waited half a century and I'm dealing with these things, whereas some of the younger veterans, it's you know, for some of them, it's 12 years after, but it's still a lot sooner than 50 years. Yeah. And, and let's see if we can get ahead of that wave. Uh, I think that's our big mission is to to not have it have the wait until mid 60s till retirement for our peers to finally deal with this stuff, uh, but to do it now. And so you talked earlier, though, about stigma and about, you know, what what keeps veterans from accessing services. Um, and so what are your thoughts on stigma? I mean, obviously, you and I are familiar with mental health and we approach it and and, and you know, we're proponents of it. Um, but from your personal experience, what do you think keeps veterans from seeking services? Well, what I hear, well, actually, um a friend put together a presentation on military culture and one of those barriers. And of those who could benefit or, or those who had mental health diagnoses compared to those, I think this was an active duty uh, study as well, uh, of those who needed services, there was greater stigma about seeking them, which is interesting. Those who need it more have more aversion, uh, more negative ideas as to what that means. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why that is. 
and obviously I don't have the answer because it it, it continues to go unsolved. And uh, for my two cents, I think it is the incompleteness of military training and all the stuff we talked about, the indoctrination uh, into these skills and attitudes and charge the hill and plow ahead, uh, which are very adaptive uh, in a combat situation. We need people to do this. That's going to lead to the most chance of success of the mission and saving life by having that attitude. Uh, but people don't understand why they were trained in that attitude and when to turn it on and off. So I think the charging ahead that I need to disregard this blister and broken ankle, maybe this bullet in my leg for the sake of getting the mission done, which is the absolutely right attitude when you're in the middle of a mission, uh, why, why that's the right attitude and why it doesn't apply in other situations. So I think it's just an incompleteness of military training. No, I, I like that idea. You know, the phrase, of course, ours is not the question why, ours is to but do or die. Uh, and, and I don't know whether when I was in airborne school as 22 years old in 1997, I don't know if the why really even mattered. Uh, and, and I don't know if in the time of training to indoctrinate and then give the reason behind would be beneficial or something yeah. happens later, right? You know, or as you as you become, uh, I recalled um, airborne school in the army and 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 then the other services. My jump buddy was a marine, and uh, and we spent three weeks or two weeks just throwing ourselves against the ground and from higher and higher successive heights, and mm-hmm. and all of it was so that when this little green light went on, I would jump out of the airplane, and that yeah. was it. And then later on, when I started studying, studying psychology and I saw, you know, behavior modification of Pavlov dogs, I was like, oh, it was the like <laughs> biggest uh, uh, behavior modification experiment, brainwashing, you know, and it's a, oh, I get it. And, and now knowing what I know about, you know, uh, operant conditioning, classical conditioning, that's all airborne school was. Uh, same thing in you know, a Naval Academy. You had, uh, what, a 40-foot height, like everybody had to come off the, yeah. the 40-foot dive uh, simulating coming off the ship. And there were people that balked at it probably, but yet ultimately overcame their fear and did it. I don't know if the explaining this is why you're doing this in the midst of that would be beneficial, but I could see what you mean that at some point putting that completeness on could help veterans understand, well, this is why I do this in this environment, but not that one. Yeah, I agree. The being stewards of taxpayer dollars taking 18-year-olds and equipping them as fast as possible to get out and do the mission uh, and the potential impacts on, on the behavioral modification. I'm not sure if that information up front would be useful. Uh, if we had enough time, uh, we would wait till people were, till their prefrontal cortex were fully developed and send them out into war in their late 20s uh, when, when they can, uh, when they have more capacity to uh, judge threats and make decisions. Um, but the realities of the world don't permit that. So either at a later point in training or in the transition, uh, it would be appropriate to, to provide such information and And then to help adapt those skills to the civilian life. And that's, that's a very interesting concept, Timothy, because in many ways you and I and other mental health providers are providing we are completing the incomplete military training. We are providing uh-huh. that next step of, okay, this is what you did. This is why you did it in that context. This is why you can't do it here. And so for those individuals who find challenges in making that adaptation between cultures or between environments, uh-huh. that mental health providers can, can complete that training and bring them back home fully? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. And many of your guests uh, are doing just that, uh, training providers and how to provide this service and then directly providing it to veterans. But yeah, mental, obviously uh, s- s- mental health professionals are an important part of uh, that transition. Not the, not, the, not the answer to everything, but because of our broad sets of knowledge and understanding how the the culture and the behavioral techniques and individual factors all come together, we're probably in the best position 
to put those pieces together and help other people create those programs. And and what I hear in that also is another thing that uh, many veterans, maybe not the ones that I talk to who come to see me, but people think it's going to be Freud on the couch for years and years and years. Right. right. Um, but, but again, what you're saying and what I'm saying is once you get to the point where you've got a grasp on it and you understand it, then, then transition's done, right? You've, you, you know, you're, you go forth and do great things in the rest of your life uh, yeah. because you don't need to be here for, for, you know, months and months. I, I got a colleague, she says that uh, if I'm still seeing a client after two years, I'm not really doing my job very well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, some therapies are explicit about my goal is to make you your own therapist going to help you develop these tools and you're going to go out and you won't need to come here unless you need a tune up or you come up to a new challenge and, and maybe there's other skills we haven't discussed yet. But for now, you have your tools to be your own therapist uh, to address challenges in your life and, and get out of here. <laughs> and then if you meet new challenges that these tools aren't, aren't enough, come on back. Yeah, so I mean, and I, I think that's uh, that's really important, and it's another important message, of course, for veterans to understand that uh, this isn't a lifelong um, a lifelong sentence. You're not going to be sitting on the couch talking about your mother, and, unless your mother's the problem, and then we can. But it's not. <laughs> but it but it's the the stereotypes that many people have about that. Uh, but then you you also talk about uh, teaching skills and teaching empowerment and things like that, and and I guess to move on to really what you're doing. Um, with the, the Veterans Yoga Project, um, one of the things that when, when you and I talked about before is the, the idea of um, embodied cognition, embodied emotion, like how we feel thoughts and emotions, physically feel thoughts and emotions in our body. So I guess I'd like to hear more about the Veterans Yoga Project and kind of how that ties into mental health. Yeah, well, uh, Dr. Dan Libby... Uh, the founder and director of Veterans Yoga Project. Uh, he was at the VA a few years ago and conducted a survey uh, of which uh, VAs are providing complementary integrative health, uh, such as yoga. And one of the findings of that survey, for those that weren't providing it, one of the main reasons was a lack of trained personnel who could provide the services. So he created the Veterans Yoga Project to help answer some of that need. And included in that is a mindful resilience training, which is teaching yoga teachers and veterans who are interested uh, how to teach uh, culturally appropriate trauma-informed yoga, recognizing that all of us to some degree have some sort of trauma that may affect our, our lives in a big way at the moment. It might not be a significant part of our lives, but all of us have some sort of traumatic experiences uh, independent of there's a diagnostic category, which is designated for, for insurance and communication within the field, but th that's a different level of trauma. So they, uh, Dan and team, and, and now uh, I help as well, teach mindful resilience, which enables people to uh, be with their own body and emotions. And a lot of other behavioral therapies are focused on this in different ways, and that at least half of our emotional experience is in our body. Uh, we don't sit there and say, I am very angry right now. There, there's a tension in the voice. There's a tightness in the throat. There's a shallow breath, probably a tightness in the gut, maybe some blood pumping in the fists and feet. Um, so, so to even know our own emotions and what we're feeling requires the body and connection to the body. And on top of that, many traumatic experiences involve a physical experience. Uh, being in a vehicle when, when a trauma happened or being assaulted physically by somebody when the trauma happened. And, and the, our body is in particular physical condition. And we're in a particular posture, uh, a different certain heart rate and physiological states. They get paired with this traumatic experience. And so we say one, way, one thing we say in psychology is uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. So these experiences get connected, and now often chronic pain is also connected to this experience. So the pain is connected to the trauma, connected to the anxiety and depression. And to provide culturally appropriate and trauma-informed yoga helps active duty and veterans 
leverage their own inner resources to understand their own body that provides an, an experimental space for them to look at this is not right for me because it's exacerbating an injury and I should stop. That gives control over one's experience. And one of the key components of a traumatic experience is a lack of control. So we help provide control, um, help the person have their own control in their space. Uh, and safety and predictability are the other two main components of trauma-informed yoga uh, as, as Dan has developed it. Given that traumatic event wasn't planned, it wouldn't be so traumatic if, oh, I know when I turn that corner, this bad thing's going to happen. That's not how traumatic events happen. So it's unpredictable. Uh, and obviously there's a lack of safety, a, a, a violation or threat of violation to one's physical body or somebody else's. Uh, so by learning these practices to be on the mat in a safe place to connect with one's own body, we can help repair these physical experiences with emotional and cognitive experiences, uh, which is what a lot of exposure therapies do, what trauma-focused therapies do, just in a different way that doesn't leverage the body as much. And I really like what you're, you're, you're saying there, and, and it just came to my mind that um, when veterans are reminded of traumatic events, that it comes through their senses. I mm. see something visual. Um, I've said it often here. I'm not a fan of the full moon because when we went out on patrol in full of loom, that's when we get hit. And so I, the visual side of the full moon, the sound of the loud noise, the smell of, of, of diesel or, or, or whatever it is. And so veterans are very familiar with not even just the visual, the auditory and the olfactory, but even like proprioception, like my sense of space and when I'm feeling closed in. Yeah. One thing that I don't, that, that maybe just a light bulb in my mind is that sense of that cold trickle down the back can be just as the, the, our sense of touch, our sense of sensation can be just as much a trigger, a reminder of a traumatic event. The hair standing on in, like you said, the churning of the gut where we feel physically angry um, that can be as much of a trigger and sometimes even more because it's unaware. Veterans are unaware of that. Absolutely. And that's uh, a part of the challenges of panic. And uh, I'm studying for my licensing exam and they're reviewing key studies. And at one time they invected, uh, injected people with uh, norepinephrine and it creates an arousing response uh, in the body, increased heart rate. Uh, arousing, and then people would look at their environment, and if they were around happy people, they would think they're exhilarated and happy. If they were around upset people, they thought they were angry. So there's a misinterpretation. So I said at least half of our emotional experience is in the body, but half or another proportion is in the head and how we label it. So what is arousing is merely arousing. It's not positive or negative. But if we say, oh, this is exciting, I really enjoy this, that arousal is now a positive thing. In the case of post-traumatic stress, or I see the full moon or things that are paired to negative things, I'm aroused right now, I look around, I find a cue that confirms a threat of some kind, or maybe there's not even a cue and I'm just looking for that threat. This is a common problem in post-traumatic stress is that I feel threatened, therefore there must be a threat, and I'm looking for that threat. Even in the, in the presence of confirmation there is none, the body and brain continue to be aroused. And through the physical practice of yoga, you can start to experiment with yourself. Okay, is this, is this tension? Is this arousal? Is this increased heart rate because I just stood up fast? Or is it because uh, there's somebody out to get me and there's a clear threat? And the more we have these experiences in a non-combat area uh, where 99% of things around us are truly not a threat, uh, can gradually get better at recognizing what is and is not a threat instead of being stuck in that constant threat mode. And I think that uh, in really what you're talking about with mindful awareness, it's helping veterans come to an understanding of what emotion physically feels like. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and this is something that, that just about with every veteran that I talk to, um, one of the first, when the first two, three sessions, we talk about embodied emotion. What does emotion physically feel like? And they say, and usually when they ask, it's cognitive. Oh, when yeah. I'm angry, my mind starts to race, and then I have to know, what is it physically, when you think you're angry, what do you physically feel? And for some of them, they don't even know. They can't, I mean, it takes them a little bit to really develop that mindful awareness. And others, you know, 
and I've actually had some that really are tuned with their body, but not so much with their thoughts. Is that your yeah. experience? Uh, yeah, there is a split there. And I think it's largely due to military training in that, well, it's Western culture as well, but learning to charge ahead when you have a bullet in your leg or a sprained ankle or a blister, a big, a major or a minor injury to just keep plowing ahead requires some disconnecting. The most effective way to train people to do that is to disconnect them from their body. We say no pain, no gain, which is BS, but it's effective for military training to disconnect. So there is this disconnect between, uh, commonly among uh, veterans, disconnect between body and head. And that's why interventions that are whole person focused, not just the head and how you think about things, not just the body and how you feel things physically, but a whole person, uh, that's how we achieve our goals is coming at something from our full selves and our body, even if we're paralyzed from the neck down, our body is still a part of our full person. No, and I, I again, I absolutely recognize that, and and I've also said it before. Uh, in the middle of a firefight, uh, you're neither hungry nor do you, are you mm. sleepy, or you don't have to go to the bathroom. Um, but after it's done, you got to do all three. I'm gonna, you know, eat, sleep. You know, it's all, you know, it all comes rushing back. It's not that those things weren't present in that high tense moment. It's just that we didn't have the awareness of them, and the awareness flooded back. Um, before and, and even going in that mindset whenever my you know the entire world shrinks to my trauma and nothing else matters it makes me feel like I'm back in a firefight again physically almost embodied yeah and I think that's one of the values of the mindfulness practices that what you just said there combined with the fact that veterans are used to running through checklists and using the brain uh, you, you get orders that orders are coming. Military training involves keeping the brain engaged, always planning. So keeping the brain occupied. And there's not, in most of life after the military, there's not as much to consume the brain. So the brain gets busy. It spools up about things that don't need to be, to be spun up on. But mindfulness and, and using the body and awareness of the body uh, can fill some of that mental capacity that we have by just checking in regularly with what is happening in my body right now what's my heart doing what's my breath doing where am i holding tension and then being curious as to why am i holding tension right now is that serving me is there anything to do no i can let that go and get back to a place of parasympathetic activation re relax and recovery so that when i do have to go into that meeting for work or i do have to deal with this issue at my kids school i'll have the resources to do that instead of being stuck spinning the brain up all the time uh, about things. The brain is designed to solve problems even when there are none there, and more so in the military. It just keeps spinning around and going nowhere. And so that, that uh, mind-body intervention is reconnecting, uh, tracking what's happening in the body can use those resources in, in a useful and adaptive way. No, and I think that's great. And I think uh, uh, long-time listeners uh, will absolutely recognize that, that we've had this discussion before uh, back in episode 13 with James Pond and Veterans Path talking about the benefits of mindfulness uh, in, in veteran mental health and supporting that. Um, and so uh, you had mentioned, Timothy, that the Veterans Yoga Project provides these mindful awareness training. So these are workshops um, that you or the, the organization travels around the country and provides. Yeah, all over the country. In fact, I think, Dan, somebody else might be going to uh, Europe soon, maybe Germany, uh, to do some training, which is very exciting. It's hard work. I'm, I'm sure it's, it's you know, yeah. horrible if you can't. Yeah, uh... taking care of the body, helping people meet their goals and traveling the world, tough work. Uh, I, unfortunately, am not part of that trip. Uh, but these workshops are for yoga teachers and uh, health care providers, particularly mental health care providers and veterans who are interested. And there are scholarships for veterans, partial and full scholarships. Uh, it's a nonprofit, so uh, raise funds to make yoga available to veterans. But over two or three days, the, the main training uh, VYP or Veterans Yoga Project provides right now is uh, this mindful resilience training to uh, teach yoga 
from a culturally appropriate way, uh, recognizing the pitfalls of of where it doesn't fit into the culture and where people might more quickly uh, sneer at it or turn away. So you got to understand the culture in which you're providing the yoga, uh, but also uh, trauma informed. So recognizing what what mental and physical changes might happen uh, from traumatic experiences and, and from military experiences uh, so that you can provide the most adaptive and useful yoga for the people in front of you it, to meet that need of limited amount of qualified providers out there in the yoga space uh, to provide at VAs, at hospitals, at VFWs, at community centers, at local yoga studios who open up their doors for sometimes donation or free yoga classes for veterans. So trying to support veterans, active duty, uh, their communities and their families. Uh, and, and yoga is just one tool that can incorporate all of these aspects of somebody's life to help reconnect with self and others. So, and that's great. And, and uh, I have both uh, providers and veterans who listen to this show. Uh, and so if, if, they wanted to find out of a, a training coming near them, uh, which, uh, ironically enough, there is a training coming here to Colorado Springs, um, uh, where I'm at, uh, back or in uh, May, May 18th. So a little bit after this episode airs. Um, but if they were to go find where to um, sign up or win the the program, or even to maybe invite or support uh, a training in their area, where would they find that at? VeteransYogaProject.org. Uh, there's a training tab. There's also a resource library at the top where you can get some home practices. Uh, you could look for classes in your area. There's a map, put in your zip code or city, and it'll pop up where classes are in your area on active duty bases at VAs, vet centers. Uh, and then they go to the training and find out one in your area. Uh, and there should be a link on there if you want to email VYP uh, to, to request one near you. Uh, we have to have a certain number of participants to make the training financially feasible. Uh, and yeah, uh, Root Center for Yoga uh, there in Colorado Springs is hosting in May, uh, and I'll be there uh, with Brianna, well, uh, a great veteran and, and someone who keeps BYP up and running. Uh, she's a great resource and a great teacher. Uh, so we'll be there co-teaching that course. So that's great. Now make sure that those uh, that the link to that website is in the show notes. Uh, so that uh, people can go there and find that. Uh, so if anybody was interested in hearing more about what you're doing or, or wants to reach out to you, what's a, a good way, maybe social media or some contact for you? Uh, the best way I'd say is LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that's probably the best way. Okay. And I'll make sure that we have your, uh, your LinkedIn profile uh, connected in the show notes as well. Uh, Tim, this is uh, this is great. I think it was well worth the wait. I know you and I were were uh, uh, trying to get this uh, uh, together for a bit, but uh, I think this is uh, this is some really beneficial stuff. Thanks, Dwayne. I hope to do it again. You're doing great work, and you're a huge asset to our community. Well, I am kind of a big guy, but I don't think that's what you meant, right? <laughs> Not at all. No, thanks, Tim. I really appreciate it. All right. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. I think there are a lot of great points that Timothy brings out. First, no matter where you are in your reserve service, it's not always that easy to shift in and out of the military mindset and into a corporate civilian mindset. Even when he was working with an organization that directly supported the military and worked with them constantly, it wasn't easy to continue to make that shift. Another part that I really enjoyed about our conversation is how we touched on the subject of culture. We've talked about this often before in this podcast, but it's always a conversation worth having. When we leave the military in any branch and in any form, we're changed and we've adapted to a different culture, the military culture. Being aware of that and managing that is critical to making the shift from being a service member to a veteran. And finally, our discussion at the end about how we physically feel our emotion is always something that intrigues me. It's always a good exercise for veterans that I work with. What does anger feel like? Where do you feel fear? For some, it's in the pit of the stomach. For others, it's a lump in the throat. Understanding how we feel these emotions and where these emotions are in our body can really support us. 
Here's a quick story. As I mentioned in this episode, I went to airborne school in 1997, and I jumped out of airplanes a lot in my career, both at Fort Bragg and here at Fort Carson. One thing that I've never hid from anyone, I was afraid of heights as a kid. My family did a lot to try to help me get over it, but it was a severe fear. I then did a lot of things myself to get over it, like bungee jumping and ultimately jumping out of an airplane and becoming a jump master. But whenever I jumped, I knew what fear felt like. For me, I noticed it in my throat, both a sensation and almost a, a physical lump. When I was in Iraq in 2006-2007, I was stationed on Fab Rustamaya, one of the bases north of the river in Baghdad. Like all of the other bases around that time, you could set your watch by the regularity and frequency of the indirect fire. After being there a short while, I started noticing, and this isn't me bragging, but I started to notice that the mortar fire didn't bother me. I literally did not experience the fear reaction that I did in other situations. It wasn't that I wasn't cautious, it's just that I didn't experience it and get the same startle reaction that I did even when I first got there. I actually started to wonder if there wasn't something a bit wrong with me. The few times I did feel it in Iraq was when someone else was involved. Then, of course, when I came back stateside, any loud noise kicked that reaction off in me. A dog barking, lightning and thunder, a door slamming. I noticed, again, that the fear feeling was back. This was critical in helping me recognize that I had control over the emotion and that I could manage it and even reduce it. First the presence, then the absence, then the presence of the physical sensation in non-dangerous situations helped me recognize what was going on inside myself. And that's the kind of thing that Timothy was talking about. It's important and necessary for us to be aware of our own personal physical responses to emotion. That way, we can manage the emotion and regulate it. Tune in next week when we have a conversation with another veteran and clinical mental health professional, a colleague and friend of mine, Carl Lofaro. Carl and I have a great conversation and even slip into him interviewing me for a little bit instead of the other way around. Until next time, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out. Because remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real. Found a feast and lost a soul. Eventually my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds overgrown, pushing up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies. Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me. R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility. Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability. Need a facelift back to basics, vision LASIKs, I only
eyes. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up. You know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.